passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Uh, all right, we'll, we'll be in uh, 1 Samuel 26 this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to, to 1 Samuel 26. Um, as you're doing that, um, I would imagine uh, all of us have heard the conventional proverb, um, God helps those who help themselves. And uh, the sentiment behind that has, has been around for millennia. Um, it's something that um, even the ancient Greeks would, would use, the, the, the gods help those who help themselves. But it really became um, well-known, I think, in, in um, modern-day times um, and really confused for a Bible verse um, when, uh, in the 1700s, Benjamin Franklin included it in his uh, Poor Richard's Almanac. And uh, I think the sentiment behind it is, is relatively easy to grasp. It's, it's all about appealing to, it's really appealing to our culture also. Um, it's this idea of um, if you take care of yourselves, um, then good things are going to happen to you, that God is going to take care of you. And um, as I was thinking about this text this morning, I, I thought about um, really the fact that David does the exact opposite of this text, of God helps those who help themselves, but really our text tells us the exact opposite, that rather than seizing the opportunity to take care of himself, David instead um, decides to leave his future and his, really to leave God's promises into God's hands. And so um, rather than help, God helps those who help themselves, really this text is about David choosing not to help himself and God rewarding him because of that. Now, if you've been with us uh, for the last couple of weeks in 1 Samuel, this is a text that probably sounds familiar. Um, it's one that um, uh, rightfully so sounds familiar. 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26 um, look at and are uh, very similar uh, to, the, to the same um, story. And In fact, a lot of people think that they are just two versions of the same story, but there's some crucial differences. There's some some changes that take place here of, of how does David respond when he has the opportunity to seize the throne um, and in spite of all of his faults, Saul still is the king, David has been promised the throne, how will he respond when he has the opportunity uh, to take the throne from, from Saul? David understands that the ends never justify the means. Um, Saul may deserve death, but it's not in David's hands to put him to death. And two weeks ago, we were left asking the question after 1 Samuel chapter 24, um, well, who do I trust? Do I trust myself or do I trust the Lord? And, and this morning, we might be looking at the same text or a similar text and be like, okay, why do we need to, to look at this again? And I would say probably the first part is because that's something that we need to ask ourselves regularly. The Bible knows that we need to ask ourselves regularly, who am I going to trust? When I have the opportunity to get what I want, will I trust the Lord and his timing and his plans and promises, or will I trust myself and will I take things into my own hands? It's a message we need to hear over and over and over again. But there's also something else that this text, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 26, is doing for us, and that's because the Holy Spirit is communicating something unique in this text that, that isn't communicated in the other one. And so one of the, one of the unique things about this passage, or one of the ways that we can see the unique things about this passage is by comparing it. 
And there's some, some very significant differences between what has taken place in chapter 24 and what takes place here in chapter 26. So we're going to go ahead and dive into our, our text, 1 Samuel chapter 26. Uh, we'll notice this story really breaks apart into four different sections, four parts of this story. That's going to be our guide this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and pray as we, as we jump into God's Word. Father, we, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you uh, speak through it, and that's exactly what we ask that you would do this morning. We ask that you would help us to be a people who increasingly trust you to accomplish your plans, your purposes in our lives in this world, and we ask that, God, that we would not be a people who seize what we think is, is ours, but instead that we would be a people who wait upon the Lord. God, we know that you will not let those who, who put that hope in you be put to shame. And so we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this chapter begins with um, the setting, really, in verses 1 through 5. Here, in, in verses 1 through 5, we see that Saul is pursuing David once again. And, and this is kind of an, an age-old story in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, to this point in 1 Samuel, we've seen that uh, Samuel is anointed the king of Israel. He's anointed the king, and, and yet um, he, he doesn't become the king. And so Saul, um, at least not right away, and so Saul, the current king, does everything in his power to try to kill David. And there's multiple chapters in 1 Samuel where David is being hunted by Saul. He's on the run. And this morning's passage, as I've already kind of alluded to, is, is part three of this three-part story of what will David do? Will he trust in the Lord or will he trust in himself? In chapter 24, David gets it. He understands, hey, I, I'm, I'm not supposed to seize these things. I'm instead supposed to relay, or rely on the Lord, trust in God, trust in his promises and, and how he will accomplish these things. Then we get to chapter 25 and it's the exact opposite. Chapter 25, the circumstances change, the names change, and David goes from this radical trust that God is going to right his wrongs into chapter 25. David is out for vengeance, he's out for blood, and if it isn't for God stepping in at the last moment through the person of Abigail, David would commit mass murder. And we saw at the, the end of, of last week, at the end of chapter 25, there's this, this reminder to David, God's ways are better. God's ways are best. And so this morning's passage is, is uh, really the, the, the question, has David learned his lesson? Has David learned that God is worth trusting, not just in some circumstances, but in all of life? Or do I have to rely upon myself? Do I have to take things into my own hands to get what I want out of life? When David is presented with a shortcut to the, the promises of God, how will he respond? Let's go ahead and take a look, starting in verse 1. It says this, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding, among, hiding himself on the hill of Hekilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because 
old habits die hard. The Ziphites, the last time that we encountered them in 1 Samuel chapter 23, they found out that David was hiding out near them, and they said, hey, you know what? Saul would like to know this information, so let's go ahead and pass this information along to Saul. And that's exactly what they do here. They think, oh, this is an opportunity for us to get on to Saul's good side, so let's go ahead and share this information with Saul. Saul, on the other hand, 1 Samuel chapter 24, at the end of that chapter... After he realizes David is not trying to kill him, Saul says, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to pursue you anymore, David. I'm, I'm in the wrong. Uh, I shouldn't have been trying to kill you. Uh, I, I'm going to let you live, and, and we're going to just, just go our separate ways. But then the moment that, that Saul has the opportunity to, to continue to pursue David again, he, he starts right where he left off. He begins to, to chase after David yet again with these 3,000 elite soldiers hunting for David in the wilderness of Ziph where David is hiding. Verse 3, but David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came up after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies And learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. We've seen this before. We've seen that Saul gets really close to where David is. And yet something happens that we haven't seen before. Before he can reach David, David actually finds out, hey, Saul is, is nearby, he's, he's hunting for me, and so David actually goes on the offensive. That's the first time that we've seen this. Every other time, it's been God has intervened at the last minute, allowing David to escape. Now, David sends out spies into and finding Saul's camp. They report back, and we see that after they report back, David decides, hey, you know what, I'm going to go search for these things, see what's going on myself. And the text seems to indicate that David is at this higher elevation. He can see the entire camp of Saul in this moment. He sees all 3,000 men. He sees that the the men of Saul, they're they're in a circle around him, that if anyone is going to get to Saul, it's going to take a a superior military force because Saul is completely, completely surrounded by those who will protect him. So that's the message of these first few verses, the, the, the setting here, if you will. Saul, again, bent on killing David, and he's virtually untouchable at this moment. He's got his entire army protecting him. That's what makes the second part of this story all the more surprising. We, we get to the second part of the story where we see that David, he spares Saul's life in the camp once more. Verse 6, then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, And to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay about him. So David approaches two of the men in his camp. He says, hey, I'm looking for a volunteer. Who's going to come with me to, to Saul's camp? And, and uh, this is surprising to me uh, because there's, there's, if, I, if I see an army of 3,000 people and I know they're hunting for me, I don't go toward them. I run away from them. 
And honestly, that's what David has done to this point in the past. It's not, it's not cowardice. It's, it's not a lack of trust in God. It's actually David's just been smart. That's one of the ways that God has preserved his life to this point. That when he sees Saul chasing him, David runs away. He avoids the conflict. He avoids this, this predicament where he might have to kill Saul in battle. But that's not what we see here. Something happens in chapter 25. Chapter 25, God stays David's hands from killing Nabal. Remember what the heart of the text last week was about. Before David can kill Nabal, God intervenes, stops him, and just a few days later, Nabal dies at God's hand. I said last week, that's a not-so-subtle reminder that God is in charge to David. It's a, it's a billboard to David saying, hey, you know what? You can trust God because he is worth trusting, that his ways are best, that he will take care of you. And apparently David gets the message because now we see David in this moment, he's, he's trusting God, he, he's, he's relying upon God. Rather than running away, he's not trying to kill Saul by going into his camp. He actually has something different in mind. He once again is trying to prove to Saul that he has done no wrong. And so he comes to two of his men, and he says, hey, I want one of you to accompany me, one of the two men volunteers to go with David. His name is, is Abishai. We, we learn in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, this is actually the nephew of David. So David and his nephew decide to go into the camp, and we'll actually see they actually have really different motives for going into the camp uh, as we continue in this story. So Abishai and, and David, they, they make their, their way to the camp in the middle of the night, and, and the text kind of just uh, speeds through this, but, but I want you to imagine um, this is a rocky wilderness, and David and Abishai, they're, they're walking in the middle of the night. All they have is, is the starlight and the moon and the torches of the camp off in the distance to guide their way. And yet, while the, the torches are lit, there's no one awake, there's no one alert, there's no one attentive uh, watching for intruders. And so David and Abishai, and, and some miracle, as we'll soon see, are able to actually enter into the very heart of Saul's camp without anyone stirring. And they get to the heart of Saul's camp, they get to this place where Saul himself is sleeping on the ground, his, his spear is stuck in the ground near his head. This spear is a significant spear. It is the, the sign of Saul's reign. He's kept it with him throughout his reign. It's also significant because it's the item or the object that he has tried to use to kill David on multiple occasions, and it's right there next to him. And Abishai says in verse 8, Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. So as with David's army in chapter 24, here we have Abishai. And he sees this as an opportunity to put Saul to death. See, Abishai knows that God is in complete control of every moment, every situation, and, and he takes that information, that reality, and he concludes, he interprets his circumstances, this moment, and says, this is an opportunity. Because God is in control, God has given you the opportunity to take what he has promised to you. In other words, Abishai interprets opportunity as approval 
from God. And that's a key difference here. Because there are many times in our lives where we will have opportunity, but just because you have an opportunity does not make it or mean that it is approval from God. And Abishai even goes further and he says, hey, you know what, David, just in case you're a little squeamish, I know you spared him in the cave back in chapter 24, so if you're squeamish, that's why I'm here. I've come along, I can kill him, and I'm so good that I won't even have to strike him twice. This will be a mercy killing. He won't even wake up. He won't even know what is happening here. And every good king, David, needs someone who is willing to do their dirty work. That's why I've come along. So let me strike him down. Isn't that why you asked me to come along? How does David respond? We see that in verse 9. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. The text doesn't tell us if, if David hesitates or not. We're not sure if, if David considers Abishai's offer. I personally am inclined to, to think he doesn't consider it one bit because look at his, his answer here. In these few verses, he mentions the Lord five times. Last week, we saw what a fool was. We saw that a fool, according to Psalm 14, according to 1 Samuel chapter 25, is someone who lives as though God doesn't exist. And David has that information sink into his heart, and it influences all that he does. And he realizes now, in this moment, that God is king. And not just that God is king, but God cares about how David is going to act in this moment. And this isn't in the text, but I think it's worth mentioning for us to just recognize that this is a vital truth for us. When we're faced with difficult decisions on how to live our lives, on what's best next, to consider how does God fit into the equation how can I make a decision that best honors God in my life? That's, in fact, what the Bible teaches about when we're talking about the will of God. What is the will of God? Primarily, the will of God is for us to have God and his honor and his glory at the center of our lives. I've shared this before. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, talking about the will of God. Paul says, this is the will of God. And he says, it's your sanctification. If you're looking for the will of God, God is far more concerned about your character, about how you live your life in the midst of the circumstances that you find yourself in than a decision between two options. This is the will of God your sanctification. And David understands that here in 1 Samuel chapter 26, that, that God's will is chiefly and primarily concerned with how he lives, how he honors God with his life. And we see that as much in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 26 with his response to Abishai. He keeps God in mind. He, he says, you know what, I'm going to do what honors God. And so in verse 9, he says, you know what, Abishai, 
wrong is still wrong, no matter what the circumstances are. And if you are to raise your hand against Saul, even if you, you have this misguided sense of, you know what, I'm just doing God's will in this moment, you're still going to be guilty of bloodshed. That's the lesson David learns in 1 Samuel 25 with Nabal. And now he's taken that lesson to heart and says, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands because God's ways are best. Waiting upon God is always the right answer. The painful lesson of chapter 25 with Nabal has, is bearing fruit in David's life. And that's very clearly on display here in chapter 26 in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, David says, I love verse 10. I think it's one of the most important verses in this passage. Verse 10, David says that while he may not know how God is going to accomplish his purposes, he at the same time knows how God won't accomplish those purposes, and it won't be through David taking Saul's life. There's something very beautiful and powerful about David's statement in verse 10. It expresses this humble uncertainty, saying, hey, you know what, I don't know how God is going to, to do things. I don't know how this is going to be accomplished and yet, I'm going to continue to be faithful in the midst of that uncertainty. Isn't that what David's saying here? David says to Abishai, hey, you know what? I don't know how God is going to fulfill his promise to me that I'm going to be the king. It could be that Saul is going to be struck down by the Lord in this supernatural way. That's what we saw last week with chapter 25 with Nabal. It could be that he's going to die of natural causes. That's what David has in mind when he says his day will come to die. It could be that he's going to go out into battle, and when he goes to fight the Philistines, they're going to kill him. I don't know, Abishai, how God is going to do this but I know he's trustworthy. I know he's worth continuing to trust in the midst of the uncertainty of my circumstances because I've seen him do too much for me to think otherwise. So David, in the midst of the uncertainty of his circumstances, remained completely certain that God is in control, that God is going to do what he has said he is going to do, and David is content He's content to wait upon God. God has done enough in David's life, and I think in all of our lives as well, to earn our patience and to earn our trust in him. Now, the funny thing about all of this is all this entire conversation is done in whispers right above da of, of Saul's head. They've, they've snuck into the camp. Saul, in a very real sense, is, is inches away from death, and he's completely unaware. And, and Abishai enters into the camp uh, assuming, hey, we've come in here so that we can put Saul to death. David has a different purpose for coming into the camp, and that's what we see in verse 11. The rest of verse 11, excuse me. But now take, take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. So David doesn't come into the camp in order to kill Saul, but instead to prove that he is innocent. That's David's purpose here. He's, he's thinking about Saul, honestly. 
He wants Saul to realize that David is innocent. And so he takes Abishai and he says, hey, Abishai, I want you to take Saul's spear here. I want you to take this jar of water and then we'll go ahead and leave. And I think the transition from verse 11 to verse 12, is, it brings a smile to my face because in verse 11, you notice that he says, all right, Abishai, why don't you grab the spear and the water? And then he gets to verse 12. He's like, ah, you know what, maybe I should grab the spear. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a better idea for me to take that. Let's go ahead and leave. And so they leave, and the spear here is a, is a sign of, of, of Saul's power. The water jug um, in the midst of the desert is a form of sustenance. And David is taking them not as a way to undermine Saul, but instead saying, Hey, Saul, do you see how utterly futile it is to hunt me to stand against the promises of God. Like, do you, do you get how, how pointless your actions are, how, how useless it is to stand against God? And that's made clear at the end of verse 12. Verse 12, it says this, No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So here we see the reason why David and Abishai, they're able to sneak through the 3,000 of their enemies, have this whispered conversation about biblical ethics right above Saul's head, is because God is at work. And throughout our time in 1 Samuel, we've seen this. We've seen God's providence and his protection of David time and time again. We see the exact same thing here. God, in his providence, his purposeful sovereignty has intervened in order for him to protect David. And, and I, I think it's worth noting that the text doesn't tell us that David is aware of this. The text doesn't say that, that David receives some special insight from God before he decides to go into the camp saying, hey, you know what, God is going to put everyone in this deep sleep so you'll be safe. And there's no insight afterward either. There's no moment after David leaves the camp where a prophet comes up to him and says, hey, by the way, the reason why you were able to do that is because God was the one who put these people to sleep. And David isn't given insight into this, but we are. And I think that's vitally important for us to recognize that that the last part of verse 12 is written for you and me, not just as a sign of God's power, and and that's true, of course, is, is control of all things, but also as a very important reminder to us that even if you don't see God at work in your life, that doesn't mean he's not at work. David didn't receive any sort of special insight to how God was at work, and yet God was at work. Just because it seems like God is silent doesn't mean that God isn't doing anything. We can't begin to fathom the countless ways that God is at work in our lives. And we're just giving glimpses. Like David, even though David doesn't know it, how God is at work in David's life in this moment. Not just protecting the future king, even though David was the future king, but this is how God is at work on behalf of his children. And we see that that David and Abishai, they leave the camp, and David, once he's at this safe distance, he decides to make his presence known. That's what verses 13 through 16 are. Next part of the story, 
David confronts Abner. Abner is the, the commander of, of Saul's army. It says this, Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. We might be wondering, what exactly is David doing here? Is he he's just bragging to Abner of what he got away with? I think there's, there's some significance here to what is happening. David is trying to, po- to prove a point to Abner and then also to Saul once he wakes up that if you are op- opposed to God, if you're opposed to the Lord, then, then you are hopelessly outmatched. You're just hopelessly outmatched. That's what David is doing here when he's talking uh, to Abner. He wakes Abner up and Abner responds, grumpily, understandably so, in this moment. And David tells Abner, you know what, you deserve to die because you had been entrusted with a job. The entire army has been entrusted with a job to protect Saul, the Lord's anointed, and you neglected that duty. And this was just a common punishment for someone when they, in, a, in an ancient army for dereliction of duty. You'd be put to death for something like this. And that's what David says, you deserve to die. Because I don't think you realize it, Abner, but someone snuck into the camp in order to kill Saul. That was Abishai. There was someone there that wanted to kill Saul, and if it wasn't for David doing Abner's job, Saul would be dead. That there would be no King Saul in this moment. And David said, you don't believe me? Go to Saul. Look for his spear. Look for his jar of water. Both of them are missing. And David in this moment is saying, do you realize how hopelessly outmatched you are? It is utterly foolish for you to stand opposed to the Lord, stand opposed to his plans. Implied in that is is actually a request, a plea, saying, hey, return to the Lord. Not just just Abner, not just Saul, but there's 3,000 men here in this army, and if any of them would listen, David's saying, hey, you know what, now is your opportunity to join in what God is doing, to join in the promises of God, the plans of God. You have been completely outmatched at every single moment in this chapter. You didn't find David, David found you. You didn't protect Saul from David sneaking into the camp. David made it all the way to Saul. Saul didn't kill David. David had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he didn't. Do you really want to be opposed to this God? That's what David is saying here in these few verses. And almost as if on cue, Saul wakes up in this conversation from a distance between David and Abner. That's the final part of this chapter. David pleads his innocence to Saul, starting in verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And David said to him, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? 
Now, therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. It is, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. When Saul enters into the scene, David stops addressing Abner. He now begins to address Saul. And rather than pointing to his innocence like he did with Abner, David actually does something different with Saul. He says, hey, hey Saul, why are you pursuing me? As, as I understand it, there's only two possible options. The first one is maybe, Saul, God has actually sent you to do this. That maybe there's some sin that I'm not aware of that God has said, hey, I want you to pursue David as a sign of my judgment upon him in order to get him to repent. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is actually what God entrusts or asks Saul to do with the Amalekites, to pursue them, to destroy them as a way of, of God's judgment upon them. Ironically, Saul doesn't do that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So David in this moment is saying, hey, you know what, Saul, if, if I need to repent, give me the chance to repent. Alternately, there's a second option. The second option is maybe, maybe Saul, you're just listening to, to the counsel of, of foolish and, and wicked and evil men. Notice David doesn't accuse Saul of evil and wickedness. The implication, of course, is there. But David said, if that's the case, he, he actually curses these men because Saul's pursuit of David has actually left David outside of the promised land, outside of the promises of God. And if this pursuit continues, David is going to have to take refuge among pagan nations like the Philistines, as he has done earlier and actually will do next chapter. David is saying, if you drive me from the land of Israel, it would effectively cut me off from the promises of God. And this might sound confusing to us, but we have to understand the Old Testament view of worship. Worship in the Old Testament was centered on the tabernacle, in the tabernacle. Tabernacle was the place where you offered sacrifices, where true worship would take place. And if you aren't able to go to the tabernacle, you won't be able to truly worship God. What's more, the land was a key part of the promises of God to the people of Israel. And so to be cut off from the land of Israel was in effect to cut someone off from the promises of God, from the heritage of the Lord. To do this was in effect saying to someone, hey, go serve other gods because there's no place for you here among the people of God. And for David, that was the greatest harm of all that Saul was doing to him. Just consider Psalm 27. We see David's heart on display. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's David's heart. And the, the actions that Saul is taking, that he's taking right now, they're cutting him off from the promises of God. And so David pleads with Saul, says, I need you to stop pursuing me so that way I can worship God, that I can be a part of God's people. That's the heart of David's concern. How does, David, how does Saul respond? Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. 
Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Saul's response here, it leaves a lot to, the, to be desired. He confesses sin, but he's done that before. That's what we saw in chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 24. Saul says, hey, I won't hurt David anymore, but, but he said that too. He said that in chapter 18. He said that in chapter 24. There's nothing new about what Saul is saying here. And he admits sin, but he just says, you know what, I've made a mistake. I've made a mistake. And David is, his response is very understandable based off of the, the very lackluster answer from Saul here. Verse 22. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for its righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David doesn't take Saul up on this offer to return. Um, he, he says, Saul has said, hey, you know what, I've acted foolishly. David's like, okay, well, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going <laughs> to be foolish myself and trust you in this moment. So if you really want your spear back, just send someone over and they can have it back. And then he says, this confidence, this expectation that the Lord God will reward him for his faithfulness and righteousness might hear that word reward and, and say, well, what exactly is in mind here when he talks about reward? I think the answer is found in verse 24. Verse 24, it tells us that the Lord will first consider David's life precious and second, that he, God, will deliver David out of all tribulation. David is, is saying that he is, is acting faithful and righteous in this moment by not taking David's, or by taking Saul's life. And because of that, God is going to reward him with the promises that God has made to him. This isn't a form of works righteousness, anything like that. It's just a call to perseverance. That David is remaining faithful, that he is enduring in the faith. David has this opportunity in, the, in this moment to, to kill Saul, and yet he decides to remain faithful. He decides to remain obedient. He has, he's persevered in the faith. And because of that perseverance, that endurance, He is sure to receive the promises that God has made to him. And as we bring our time together to an end, I want us to just recognize that that is the same thing for us as well. Consider the the words of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endurance, steadfastness, and obedience, and faith is the calling of a God-honoring life. It's true for David, and it's true for us as well.
I think this call to endurance is particularly important in the face of hardship when we consider the opportunity that David had and his response, especially in verses 10 and 11. Remember back in verse 10, verse 11, David says, I'm not going to raise my hand against Saul because even though I don't know how God is going to do this, even though there's uncertainty about how God is going to keep his promises, I am completely certain that God is able to do what he has promised. I'm convinced that this is the heart of the key to to enduring and persevering in the faith, that no matter what hardship you face, no matter what suffering or difficulty or affliction, that remaining steadfast and confident in God, that he is able to do what he has said that he will do is the key. That's the heart of it. In fact, that's the message of this chapter, that you can endure the uncertainty of life because of the certainty of God's promises. That's what 1 Samuel chapter 26 is telling us, that when you are faced with an uncertain life, you can, you can endure because you can be certain of God's promises. When you're not sure what life will bring, endurance is not found within us, but by looking to the God whose promises are sure. That's the heart of what David says in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, talking about faith, he, he uses Abraham as an example. Hundreds of years before David, Paul says that even in the uncertainty of his life, Abraham remained confident in God's promises, even when his life seemed uncertain, even when it seemed impossible for God to keep his promises, he, Abraham, remained confident in God's character and in God's word. Consider Romans chapter 4. It says this, No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I love that last phrase. That's faith. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's the exact same thing that we see from David here in this passage. Why does he refuse to raise a hand against Saul? Why does he refuse to seize the throne? Why does he reject this adage that God helps those who help themselves and instead decides to leave things into God's hands? It's because even though the circumstances of how God will do things remained a mystery to David, he knew that God was going to keep those promises. And the same thing is true today as well. I need to hear this. Um, uh, seven months ago, my dad died unexpectedly. Today's his birthday. Um, I need to be reminded that even though I don't understand the ways of God, he's worth trusting. that we can have confidence in him, that we don't get the specific details of what he's doing, but God's going to keep his promises. 
those promises of resurrection, those promises to never leave us or forsake us, to always be with us, that he's working all things for our good, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it. If you feel like giving up, this text is for you. It's a reminder to hold on. If you're tempted to despair, here's hope. That you can endure the uncertainty of life, not because of any strength that you can muster up within yourself, but because God is faithful. I, I read from Hebrews 10 a few moments ago. I just want to read that passage in context of why we can endure. It says this. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you that you're a faithful God, that even when life seems uncertain, We can endure and persevere, remain steadfast and obedient to you because of who you are. Thank you, Jesus, that the promises of God are guaranteed on the cross and in the empty tomb. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.